You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you, Brother Ken, for that. Appreciate that song. And uh, it is only as we die to ourselves that Jesus Christ can live and work through us. And I'm thankful for that truth today. My wife and I like to do something together um, that our children haven't really caught the bug for, and that is hiking. You know, when we, when we go on vacation, we like to typically go to places like a national park, or uh, we, we just like to drive, at least I do. I don't know if my children do, but I, I like to drive and I like to see things. I'm, I'm kind of one of those nature geeks. When I see something that's really pretty, I would just want to stop and look at it for a while. Maybe you're like that, but my wife and I, we like to hike. That's, that's something that we're interested in, and, and our kids, we typically, um, you know, we'll kind of work them up for one hike in, on a trip or something, and then after that, they're like, okay, let's go do something different. So a few years ago, though, we came up to uh, the Black Hills, and we went hiking um, on Black Hill Elk Peak, or Harney Peak, as some of you call it, and uh, it's a beautiful place in the Black Hills. We've been there Already since we've been here in 10 months, we've been there many, many times to the Black Hills because people come and they, and, and they want to see South Dakota and they think, well, you know, that's where Mount Rushmore is, so can you drive us over there real quick? I'm like, well, I don't think they have a grasp on the geography of it, but we, like to, we do like to go hiking. A few years ago, we went up Black Elk Peak and we took all of our children and, and uh, there are so many places to stop along the way that are beautiful. There's so many places on a hike like that that you really could just stop and take it all in. And, and I've, I've pictures from that hike, and most of the pictures are from the journey up or the journey down. Um, but, but we didn't stop at every beautiful place along the way because we were trying to get to the top. We, were, we had a goal in mind, we had a destination in mind, and we did make it, by the way, and and um, our son, Jace, who I think was about four at the time, and he didn't stop talking the entire trip. It was like no big deal. Gravity doesn't have much, much pull on a little 30-pound body, apparently. But we got all the way to the top, and we took pictures. Our destination was at the top. And honestly, that's a little bit like the way that I look at Genesis chapter 1 today, in that there are countless places to stop along the way and just look around. We could stop in verse 1. We could stop in verse 2. We could stop on day 1. We could stop on day 2. And we could take a look around and really never exhaust what we're looking at. We really couldn't take it all in along the way. And, and we could spend an entire series on creation. We could spend an entire series as a study on these six days of creation and really not exhaust it all. It's a, it's a study in and of itself. But my intention this morning, I hope it doesn't disappoint some today, that we're, we're trying to get to the top. We're trying, we have a destination in mind, and if you want me to preach Genesis 1 in one message, then we better not stop along the way, or it will be a literal six days. We'll be there for a while. But I want to get to the top, I want to get to the point, and maybe one big point that I think we could see from the Genesis creation account, because the more you know God, 
That's what I want to get to as we read this and look at this, is to a better knowledge of God. Because the more you know God, not only does it help you trust Him, but it also makes you wonder why He would love us enough to be interested in our lives. So I think these points along the way, they show us some things about God, but we're not going to be stopping at each of them. We're getting to the end, and I hope by the end of it you'll see that it has value and is a help to us. But there's three truths along the way, and really these could be seen in verse 1, and they're played out in the rest of the chapter. There's three truths in Genesis 1 that really help us better know God and therefore trust Him as He leads us on our journey in life. And that is, number one, God exists. Number two, God has power. And number three, God has a plan. God exists... God has powerful, he is powerful, he has power, and God has a plan. And I'm going to start and go through each of these, and and the first is that God exists. This is the foundation for knowing God. In the beginning, God is a declaration, as I said last week, not an explanation. We don't have an argument for it, there's no facts about it. No, it simply is a statement that we accept by faith that God exists. In the beginning, God God is eternal. He has always existed and He always will. And that is so above our limited minds that we can't really understand it. That An explanation wouldn't help us to understand it because we are so limited in our brains. We can't wrap our minds around the fact, as I said in Sunday school, I, can't, I can understand that God always will exist, but I can't understand how God has always existed. It's beyond my mind. I can't get it. I can't wrap my mind around it. And honestly, that's okay because if he was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. So there are some things about God that it's okay that we don't understand, but the things that we can understand, let's, let's go for those. Let's understand those. In one statement, in the beginning God, as one commentator put it, one statement really puts to rest the fallacies that man has invented regarding God and, and, and creation. They're all exposed. See, if you say in the beginning God, and that, that means God exists, and in one phrase it refutes atheism, which says there is no God. The fool in his heart has said there is no God. It also denies polytheism, which states that there are multiple gods, and that would have been good for the children of Israel to hear because they'd come from a pagan culture that believed in over 2,000 gods. It also rules out pantheism, which says that God is a part of creation, Because we see here very clearly, God is separate from his creation. And yes, you can look at a mountain and it can point to God, but that mountain is not God. And that's good in this culture for us to hear that, that we don't worship nature. We worship the God who put it all there. See, one commentator said this, God is the great originator and initiator. False systems of theology and philosophy begin within man and seek to work to God. But we must, in our thinking, begin with God and work down to man. Do you have a top-down view of religion? Do you have a top-down view of God? Because most of the people in this culture start with themselves and look up to God. But the proper way to think about God is to start in Genesis 1, and it all starts with God and comes down from there. You see, contrary to popular belief, the universe does not revolve around mankind. The central character in our story has always been God. God exists outside of his creation. He exists above his creation. 
And he exists before his creation. If he made it all, then he controls it all. He's the ultimate authority in the universe. The children of Israel, they needed to hear that because they had been influenced by that culture with thousands of gods. And Moses, with one statement at the beginning, refutes and says, only God, one God exists. Listen, you must believe that before you can take a journey of faith. You must believe that if you're ever to get to where God wants you to believe, you start with the fact that God exists and that helps you on your journey to become what you're supposed to be. God exists and there is one God, one God only, and his name, according to this, is Elohim. That's the Hebrew word for for this name of God. It's the first name used in Genesis. It's mentioned 32 times in this chapter alone, over 2,700 times in the Old Testament. And it's important because it's the first name given to God. It's the first title given to God, and therefore it has significance. If you look at the word Elohim, El means God, and Him is actually a plural ending. And you say, well, that doesn't make much sense. Well, it does when you realize this isn't the evidence of multiple gods, but we do have in that word El, which means God, and Him, which is a plural ending. You have evidence, the first evidence of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, and another truth that we can't wrap our minds around, and you say, well, this isn't really fair today because you keep talking about things I can't understand, okay? Well, there's a lot here. I, I, we're, we're just trying to wrap our minds around the things we can't understand. Let's do that. But see, God ex- exists eternally in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he's just, though, he's just called God. He operates as one person. And we see here that all three are involved in creation. We could go to Colossians chapter 1, which is about Jesus, and, say, and see that it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and earth, invisible, uh, visible thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by him and for him, talking about Jesus Christ. Christ was there in the beginning. We could also see in verse 2, you see a capital S on, and the Spirit of God there at the last phrase of verse 2. The Holy Spirit was there too. Elohim, God plural, indicates the doctrine of the Trinity from the beginning of Scripture that is developed throughout the rest of the Bible, the great three-in-one. And we don't have time to stop and study about it, but the name Elohim is plural. We, we serve a God who is one God but exists eternally in three, in three persons. There's another thing about that name Elohim that's interesting, though, is because it doesn't just refer to the plural. It also means something. It has a definition. And here's the definition of Elohim. It means the mighty and powerful creator. See, Elohim is about God's might. If you were to say Elohim around the Jews, they would think God is strong. If you were to say Elohim around them, they would think God is mighty, God has powerful, and that leads to the second point that we find here. First is God exists. Second is God is powerful. Let's catch a glimpse of his power. As we read this text, and I was thinking about it as we sing, How Great Thou Art. We were literally talking about the things God has created. And if that song didn't make you in your mind and in your heart think God is great, God is powerful, then you weren't paying attention to it. So as we go through this, I want you to notice Elohim's power in the beginning. First, God created. And that word created comes from a Hebrew word, which means bara, which which is pronounced bara, which means to fashion something new. 
See, in the Bible, this word is only ever used to describe the activity of God. It never says man created. It never says man bara. It only says God bara, which only God, and here's why, because only God can make something new out of nothing. See, mankind can make or build, and mankind can form or fashion, but we cannot make something out of nothing. And that's a major issue to the evolutionists out there who say that the universe um, was created by a big bang or a big explosion and then evolved into what we see today. You see, if you talk to them about that, then they talk about an expanding universe and it's getting bigger. And they say in order to understand where it came from, then you reverse that and realize that it came from something much smaller. And if you go back to the beginning, it was very small and something very small had a big bang and exploded. And now it's, that's, where, that's what began the process of evolution but there's one question they've never been able to answer if you ask them that. If you say, okay, I give you that. We'll, we'll assume that's true. But let's go back to the beginning. And that material that was first there when the Big Bang happened, where did it come from? And they cannot give you an answer. That's the question as they even admit themselves that they try to avoid. See, when you ask a scientist or evolutionist to explain their position, they give you that theory of a billions-year-old universe, and it started with that bang, but they can never tell you where the combustible material for that first big bang came from. It takes faith to believe that. See, and when you compare creation to evolution, I truly believe it takes more faith to see what is here on this planet and what is in the sky and in the solar system and when you see the design and you see the order in our universe, I believe it takes more faith to believe that it all came by an accident than it does to look around and say, well, that points to a designer. That points to an originator. It points to an initiator. I believe it takes less faith to hold the position of somebody that believes in creation than somebody that believes in evolution. Verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth. I want you to think about that. It takes seven words to describe how God made the universe. Seven words to describe it. A universe as big as ours is the Milky Way. I believe in our, in our, solar, or in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. I believe that there are supposed to be over 200 billion stars. Don't ask me how they got to that number. I have no idea. I don't think they sat out there and counted them all. But they predict or they, they're, they're kind of estimating there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. But listen, if you were to look at the sky and, and hold your thumb up, which would be about the size of the moon in the sky, if you could look through that, that spot in the sky like a hole into the rest of the universe, there are over 100 million galaxies behind your thumb. So just behind your thumb, 100 million galaxies, multiply that times 200 billion and I could do it if I wanted. I just won't because, you know, I don't want to. I've got to move on. But in your mind, if you could multiply that quick, I mean, you start to realize the vastness of this place. And yet our God is so powerful that Isaiah 48, 13 says, Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. Like it's not a big deal. That's the power and sovereignty and authority of the God that creates. He creates and he controls. See, most of Genesis is about God's power. 
Most of Genesis is about God's creation ability. In verse 2, I mean, there are differing beliefs about how the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. We don't have an explanation, so I'm not going to project or pretend to know, but some believe that God created the earth and then Satan fell and then the earth was without form and it was without void and uninhabitable, so God had to come in and fix it. But listen, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that necessarily, doesn't come out and say it. Um, I don't know if that happened or not, but as a Bible believer, my responsibility is simply to read the text and take it as literally as possible. That's what we do. We're not told that something happened to the earth and made it full of chaos, so therefore we just believe that it's not an important detail and we're going to move forward. So we're going to take this at face value and believe that as God created the earth originally, it wasn't the finished product. It wasn't ready yet. You see, God created the earth to be inhabited by man. And rather than speak with one word, rather than say, okay, everything you're created and it's done and it's over with, for some reason, God doesn't finalize it all with one word. He doesn't complete it all with one step. He chooses to create in stages. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, I don't know that either. But I do believe he wants us to take note of a process. He wants us, he has a reason for everything, right? He has a reason, and while he's all-powerful, he does things on purpose. He has a reason for the process. He wants to highlight that, and chapter 1 is full of this process. And we're going to get to that process in a moment, but I want you, as we go through this, consider again his power and, and how he creates with just a word. In day three, we're not going to read it all. It says that God created light. And he separated light from darkness. In verse three, let there be light. And there was light. No, we don't know the the source of that light. You say because the sun wasn't created till day four. Well, I can't answer that either. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time. But we do know one thing. God is light. And if rather than speculate, let's just be amazed that God can just speak and there's light. And however it came about, if it's from him because he is light, or if he had something else, I don't know. But the major part that I want you to see in this process over and over is that God is powerful enough that he says, let there be, and there is. See, another name for God is Yahweh, which means uh, I am. And we could go over to Exodus and see this. God just exists He doesn't need somebody to help him exist. He doesn't depend on somebody for his existence. He's simply, I am. He exists. Well, Yahweh, that word, the verb form of that word is let there be. So I am says let there be, and there is. It just happens. That's how powerful God is. He's not just a God of power. He doesn't just have great strength. Even his words have power. His word has great effect. And when he speaks something, it happens. We can see how when he creates something new in verse 4, God saw the light that it was good. And we see that over and over in this creation account in in chapter 1, that God creates with his word, let there be, there be, and it's always good. On this first day, he creates night and he creates day and separates the light from darkness. And that evening and morning, it says we're called the first day at the the end of verse 5. And many people will take this to, they'll insert theories 
into what the day means. What the day, you know how people just overthink everything. They say that this is the day-age theory, which says that every day represents a long span of time. I mean, just a long age. That every day is longer than just a 24-hour day. Because a day to God is like a thousand years. Uh, Or some people will say there's a gap. And the gap theory says that every day, maybe it happened in a day, but there's a long period of time in between the acts of creation and, and what they're trying to do is combine elements of evolution to the creation story. They're trying to say um, that evolution is true, but creation is true too. And here's how they're justifying it. And they're saying, well, the earth is really billions of years old. And here's how you can rectify Genesis 1 with what we believe about evolution. But listen, here's what we need to get over. If God can create by simply speaking his word, then he can make everything that we know in six literal 24-hour days. And as a matter of fact, if you go through, and we'll read some of it, but if you go through and read, you realize that God did not create an egg. He created a chicken. (laughs) Meaning that he made an old earth. Here in just a few verses, we're going to see how he makes trees And on the trees, as he created them, there was fruit on the trees. He made trees that were mature, trees that were old. He made a great whale. He didn't make a baby whale. He made a great whale, a grown whale. The trees were already old. The animals were already full grown. Adam and Eve didn't come in and and weren't created as babies. They were created as full grown adults. That's how God created. And so for people then to try to explain away creation by judging how old the earth is... We have no way to know that. Uh, Bible believers, most Bible believers, the timeline is less than 10,000 years, 6,000, 8,000 years, something like that. And you say, well, that just can't be because the evidence, the carbon dating, that by the way, that that says a a Pepsi can is a million years old. So tell me how accurate that is. But they say, well, the carbon dating points to this. Listen, there's no way you can know that because God created an old earth. He created a mature earth. And he made it in its, in its completed form. By the end of it, it was full, it was complete, it was mature. And for us to try to explain away creation by coming up with our own theories, like the gap theory and the day-age theory, it's short-selling God's power. If you believe that God can create something out of nothing, it shouldn't be hard to believe that he could do it in six literal 24-hour days. Day two. God spoke and the waters of the sea and sky were separated. God said, let there be a firmament, verse 6, in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. You're saying, well, that kind of doesn't make much sense. Well, firmament means an expanse. Basically what it's saying is there's water on the earth, and there's also water up in the atmosphere. And I don't know what it looked like, but maybe when he created, all the clouds and the vapor were close to the earth, and he created them, or separated them. He put an expanse between the waters on the earth and the waters in the atmosphere. The vapor. And I'm not going to get into this too, but one commentator I read talked about how many trillions of tons all that water vapor would weigh. And God said, okay, be separated. See, God uh, separated that and created some kind of a global greenhouse. uh, Almost like a vast hyperbaric chamber. And in creating that, he made the conditions on earth ideal for growth. Ideal for life. You know, even hyperbaric chambers now, they're using them to heal people quicker, more quickly and, and to help people with injuries. 
And uh, back then, before, uh, before the flood, um, people lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. So God created this, this perfect greenhouse that was perfect for growth and life. And God spoke, and it happened. It said, it was so, at the end of verse 7. Day three, God separates the land from the sea. He makes a fertile earth. See, at that point, the earth had been covered in water, but God made dry land appear, and then he blessed the earth with grass and fruit, and as we've already talked about, uh, trees with fruit on them. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit. He made a mature earth. He made an old earth. And that's what we just have to believe what the Bible says. Don't read too much into it. Don't try to overthink it. Just take the Bible for what it says. As Bible believers, we believe in a, in a literal interpretation of God's word. And that's sure, sure to simplify a lot of things for us. He spoke and it happened. It was so. He separates the land from the sea. And then in verses 14 through 19, he created lights for the day and night. And that's lights in the sky. For those of you who aren't catching on, it's the sun and the moon. And he says it's for signs and seasons and days and years. And what it did is it allowed navigation. And it also allowed an understanding of the times of the year and seasons. You know, back before we had real calendars that let us know the date. And back before we had a GPS on our phone to tell us where to go. which It's never accurate anyway, so don't trust it. But, you know, he said the stars are there for days and times and seasons. In, in other words, the, the stars are not there to show us, you know, what our week's going to be like in the zodiac. You know, it's not there like in astrology. No, the, the stars were there to point again to order. Great is thy faithfulness. I mean, the seasons. Great is thy faithfulness. There's order. And it points to a God who created things with order. And it says by the end of it again, it says in verse 16, incredible. It says all of these things, a a great light to rule the day, lesser light to rule the night. In verse 16, he made the stars also. Like, yeah, oh yeah, by the way, I almost forgot this little detail. He made the stars also. You know, you talk about the, the Milky Way having all of these other stars and planets and in our galaxy, and that there's billions more out there, God made the stars also. And you say, well, I can't believe that's an afterthought. Well, when you start to realize his real plan for the earth and what his plan truly is, the stars are, aren't really part of the core plan. It really, in some ways, it's almost just something that gets thrown in there because he's got more important things to talk about. It's incredible. He sets those lights in the firmament, and he calls it good. Day five, then he creates life in the water and the air. He creates fish. I'm thankful. Keep up with me here. There's a lot that we're getting through, I know. He creates fish in the sea and birds in the sky. And he says, down in verse 20, uh, 22, it says, be fruitful and multiply. So he tells the, the fish and the, and the birds, he says, be fruitful and multiply. I love that word multiply because, you know, that's not the same word as it says in the beginning God created. See, bara, created, means he made something out of nothing. Well, what he tells the birds and the fish and the animals and even, yes, us mankind to do is to be fruitful and multiply. See, the word multiply assumes that you've got something there to start with. Have you ever tried to multiply by zero? I love those questions in math. It's an easy answer. It's always zero. You can't multiply if you don't have something. You see, as human beings, we could not multiply uh, on our own because we had to have somebody give us material to do it. The only reason I can multiply, we can multiply as a human race, is because God, God gave us the ability, the material to do it with. 
See, when we multiply, if we do it in our own strength and multiply by zero, we get zero. So that's why God says multiply, because I've given you something to work with. It's different than the word create, which means to fashion something new out of nothing. He says, be fruitful and multiply to the birds and to the fish. And then you get to day six, which is really what it's all about. Because on day six, God created life on land, including man. The cattle, the creeping things, he creates it and he saw that it was good. And then he goes on to the capstone. And folks, I'm not trying to be man-centered today. I'm giving you the thoughts from Genesis 1 that the creation of man was the climax of the story for him. The reason that he's doing all of this is because his plans are highlighted in what he's going to do with man. And as a matter of fact, we can look over in Genesis 2-7 and see that in the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. You know, that's the only part of creation that, was, that, that, that happened to it. We are the only, mankind is the only one that God reached down and formed and then with his breath breathed into us the breath of life. We became a living soul. And see, all of that leads to the fact that God has a plan for man. See, God exists, and God is all-powerful, and knowing that about God makes this last point the most amazing of all, that God has a plan. And the reason it's incredible, pay attention, we're, all, we're getting down to it. The reason it's incredible is that God's plan includes man. See, he says in verse 26, let us make man. Not only does that again point to the triune God, let us make man, but it also gives us insight, and I really want you to catch as we go through, don't, don't lose sight here. It gives us insight into God's ultimate plan for creation. We know that God creates, and at the end, everything is ultimately for his glory. But in his creation, this whole process of creation has been about God's plan to create this inhabitable, suitable earth for mankind. See, the climax of Genesis 1 was when God created man. And so, okay, here you are, here's man, I breathe into you the breath of life. You're different than the rest of creation. Here's the earth. Look at it, it's good. Everything you need is right here. And God says to man, now multiply, have children, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth. He says, I've blessed the earth and I've blessed you and I commission you to fulfill my purposes as a creature made in my image. Chapter one has been leading to this moment when God places man, his image bearer in that, right in the middle of that good creation so that he can fulfill God's purposes. See, we are like God in personality. We bear his image. We are like God in our capacity to make decisions and have morals. We resemble our creator. And not only that, but God's plan was to bless Adam and Eve. He wanted to bless mankind. And that's no different for us. He wants us to live lives with meaning. He gave us all things richly to enjoy, we read. That was his plan. That's the message Moses was trying to get Israel to see is that this great God can create the universe with words and the same God that can just speak and it happens has an incredible plan for your life. A God that high is interested in you. And it's amazing that a God so great would include me in his plans. 
The God that exists, the God that is all-powerful, is personally interested in our lives and has a plan for us. And you might say, okay, well, what's his plan for me? Because I'd sure like to know. I didn't even know he had one. Well, he makes it clear in Genesis 1. Here's his plan. He wants you to live a life that's blessed. He wants you to live a life that's satisfied. He created you to bear his image and represent him to the world and have joy and contentment in everything he do. And you say, well, I sure don't feel like that's the life I'm living or that's his plan for me. But from the beginning, that's the way it was. From the beginning, God created man to know him and enjoy him forever. Our problem is a few chapters later, just two chapters later, Adam and Eve fell into sin and they made it all hard. See, we now have this sin nature and it keeps us from naturally fulfilling God's original plan for us. It makes it hard. But notice I didn't say it makes it impossible. It just makes it difficult. See, let me just tell you this today. You can live a fulfilled, content, joyful, satisfied life knowing God. You say, well, how's the process? How does that work? Because to this point in my life, it's been nothing but confusion. To this point in my life, it's been chaos. To this point in my life, it's been disorder. And nothing seems to make sense. So show me what's the process. How is he going to do that for me? Well, it's the same process we just observed over and over for an entire chapter. See, it starts with God's plans, but it's carried out through God's word. See, as God's word was spoken, creation, original creation received it freely. And its effects, the effects of God's word on creation were all good. When God spoke it, it happened and it was good. He was speaking to disorder. He was speaking to something barren. He was speaking to something empty. And his word transformed it into something useful. God's word makes it all good. And as long as Adam and Eve followed God's word, it was all good. But as soon as they strayed from God's word, it threw everything off. But see, listen, the same God that created is the God that's here right now. The God that created the heaven and the earth, he's with us. He meets with us. His presence is here where two or three are gathered. The same God. The Holy Spirit is meeting with us. He speaks to us. If you're saved, you have Christ in you. The Trinity is still actively involved in in our lives. He didn't say, well, now that you're a sinner, I can no longer have anything to do with you. No, he's still actively pursuing you. And And that same God that has the power to create worlds and universes with just his words, he can make your life good with his word if you will simply, as creation, be willing to receive it. His process and power have not changed. When creation receives it, his word, it turns something empty into something filled. It brings order to the disorder. It makes something useful out of what was uninhabitable. It makes sense of the confusion. Psalm 119 says, The entrance of thy words giveth a light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. God's word can do that for your life. His plan for you is still fulfillment. His plan for you is still enjoyment. His plan for you is still to be satisfied and abide. And if you are living outside of his word, let me just tell you this today, all you'll ever know is emptiness. 
See, creation before God's word was not inhabitable. Sin separates us from God. We are the ones without form and void now. Sin has led us far away from God's original design. But let me just tell you this. God's word can make it all good. And there's somebody I, I can pretty much guarantee there's somebody in this room today and you've come into this place and you're not saved. And you don't know Christ as your Savior. You've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you don't know God. And your life is a mess because of it. And maybe on the outside it all looks good, but on the inside it's without form and void and there's no order and it's uninhabitable and it's barren and it's empty. And you came in here today and on the outside it looks pretty good, but you're not saved and you know it. And you say, well, there's no hope for me. Well, yes, there is. The same God that created still has this same process. When we, as creation, receive his word, he will, his word can transform us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17... If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So are you saying, okay, what does God's word have for me? Because I don't know that I'm saved. Here's what God's word has for you. It says, for all sin and come short of the glory of God. It says, the wages of sin is death. But it says, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you say, well, I don't see, you think the process still works. It absolutely does. Because God's word, it says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And if you will simply say, it's barren, it's a wasteland, it's empty, there's no order, God. But realize that his word has the answers for your problem. Admit you're a sinner. And receive Christ as your savior today. And his word can transform you from kind of just something that's there into something with meaning and purpose. You say, I'm far away from God. And I have been for a long time. And I've been fooling everybody. I know that I'm safe. But in my life, there's sin. And I just cannot get rid of it. And I can't overcome it. Listen, you say, well, what's the process for me? Okay, let God's word enter. Receive it. And let him transform you. 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every problem you brought in here today, you say, well, I have this problem and I don't know that it's fixable. The process is still the same and the God is still the same. He's a God that wants to make things good. And if we as creation would simply receive his word, he will. And you say, you don't know what my marriage is like today. You, don't know, you, don't, you just don't understand how bad things have been. Okay, didn't you, let me just tell you, go to God's word and receive his word and he can make it good. Ephesians 5 talks about the husband and the wife and how the husband's supposed to be and how the wife's supposed to be. And you say, well, no, I just need, some, I need, I need counseling or I need a psychologist or I need somebody to tell me some steps. No, go to God's word because it's only through God's word that we can be transformed from what we are to what we're supposed to be. You say, you don't know how hard it is with my children. I've got children, they're hard to raise and I don't know how to keep them under control. Did you know the Bible even talks about parenting? Wednesday nights come. We've been talking about it. So what you have to do as a creature is let God's word have entrance into your life. And if you submit and obey, he transforms you from something unusable to something good. Your finances are in a mess. God talks about that in Matthew 6. 
You say, I'm facing a trial. I don't know how to deal with it. No, let God's word fix this for you. Read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it talks about temptations that are beyond what we think, but there's no temptation that has uh, taken you, but just as a common to man. And God will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Even our temptations, even our trials, God's word says something about it. And if we would simply stop trying to go our own way and receive God's word, he can make it all good. The word of God's no longer audible. It's been recorded on these pages. But it still has the answers for your life's questions. And it can turn your bad into good. It can make sense of your confusion if you will simply listen and submit. God's word makes it all good. Now notice, I didn't say it makes it all easy. Sin gets in the way. But God's word can turn it into something good. And when there's nothing to have hope about, and when it doesn't make sense, and you don't think you can carry on, God's word has a supernatural ability to enter and transform disorder into something good. Nothing else can do that. You can look for the answers in so many other places, but you'll never find something supernaturally transforming like you will the Word of God. God's Word is so supernaturally transforming, it can create out of nothing. So what do we need to know? Well, God exists. And He has all power. And He loves us enough to have a plan for our lives. We have to simply be willing to let his word enter. And as it does, it transforms us. That's the process. If God's word speaks to it, believe it, obey it, and when we do, he makes it all good. 2 Corinthians 3.16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. You know what that means? Good. Complete. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, fully equipped unto all good works. When the word of God enters creation and creation receives it, it ends up good. And when God's people will receive God's word for whatever life situation they're facing, he will transform us into someone capable of good. Listen, everything you need to fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life is found in his word. Let it bring order to your family. Let it make your marriage better. Let it help you raise your kids. Let it change your view of finances. Let it lead you through that trial you're facing. Let it affect you unto good because it's all good. You want your eternity to be good? You want victory over sin? You want hope? You want to stand before God someday and have him say, good and faithful servant? Go to God's word. Let it change you from what you are to what you're supposed to be. If you can trust God, trust his process of change. Let God's word transform you this morning.
Every head bowed, remain seated. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.